Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 150 with my friend, Sav Beist. Uh, 150, is that a centennial of some sort? A, a, qu- a quincentennial? I'm not really... Oh, that might be it. I like it. A sinkincentennial? Sinkincentennial? Sinkin. Sinkincentennial. That's not important. What's important is one of the greatest songwriters of our time, some might say, uh, is on the show today. I was super excited to talk to Sav. Sav is one of the founding members of The Accidentals, an amazing, um, I don't know how they would describe themselves. I would say like folk rock songwriter group. Uh, Just a fantastic, amazing songwriter. She's worked with some of the best people out there and um, is doing amazing things. And I got to catch her on her first um, solo tour, promoting an album that's not going to be out for another year and a half, maybe. But either way, it was amazing. It was great to talk to her and find out more about her process and background and even more. So I'll let you guys get to it. I'm talking too much. You know, I hate talking in the intro, but I'll talk your freaking ear off at the end of the episode. But until then, here's my friend, Sav. You and I have lots in common, my request is sent, would you like to be my friend, would you like to be my friend? And it changed as a result, it was, it was crazy, it was a crazy time to be alive. It was a crazy time to be alive. Before we get into crazy times, thank you for doing this, first of all. But yeah, other than that, um, hi, how are you? <laughs> How's your day? Good. It's good. Um, yeah, I just got back from Dripping Springs Songwriters Festival, yeah. and uh, it was crazy. We were up late every night, all these songwriters just jamming together. So I'm my voice is like cutting in and out of existence as a result. But um, I had a day of recovery, so we're good. Good. I mean, start a uh, grunge yeah. cover band today. It'll be perfect. Right? Yeah. Just um, <laughs> you know, non-existent screams in the background but yeah, uh, yeah. like any anything above the speaking volume it just disappears into nothing so <laughs> just keep it here for now fair enough uh i do want to get into songwriting obviously uh, i usually start these out with how i know people and we don't actually really know each other um but i <laughs> i first saw you and katie playing at a brewery in traverse city in 2014 <laughs> so a while back um and as the accidentals and i've been seeing you guys live ever since and recently just saw you at your solo first solo tour right first um a headlining solo yeah. show like yeah. at a listening room for sure yeah. which that was the first time i went to 20 front street and uh holy shit that room is so good yeah it's, i'm a fan I, i'm like i gotta figure out a way to play here because that's yeah. so nice there okay. We passed through there um, on various timeout tours. The one that uh, most comes to mind is uh, we went there with Georgia Middleman and Gary Burr and Mary Bragg, um, all great songwriters, great collaborators. And so uh, that, I mean, I've, I've played there before that, but that's that show just really maybe falling in love with the listening room of 20 Front Street and just the environment that's created. And it. it's just a it's just a great spot so intimate i told uh my father-in-law and me like to go to just like really good music we were at tommy emmanuel um a week prior to seeing you and just random stuff we always find ourselves at but i told him i was like it's like the arc but better somehow which is a big bold statement i feel like <laughs> uh 
and I, I'm frightened to put that out there, but it's just the sound in there and it feels so much more intimate than than I would get. And I've sat like, you know, first row at Vanessa Carlton many times at, at the Ark amongst other, I think I've seen you guys there. Um, but I, God, I really, really enjoyed that entire room. I don't want to spend the whole time talking about that, but it was really nice. It's a really great place. Um, I'm wondering if we can rewind though, go back in time, learn learn about SAV. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so I <laughs> I was born in Nashville, which is sort of a open secret of sorts. Um, my parents met playing music together. Uh, they're both great songwriters. My dad's a multi instrumentalist. He plays everything from piano to guitar to saxophone. Uh, picks up banjo sometimes when he's sitting in for local school productions and uh, pit orchestras. So yeah. he's a brilliant musician. And my mom uh, is an R&B singer and a songwriter, uh, plays a little bit of piano and guitar. So they met uh, gigging in the Nashville area and then they had me. And then when I was five, I moved to Michigan. Are um, you single kid? Are you only child? No, um, no. So actually it's a funny story. Um, I have a biological brother, younger brother, and then my sister, my youngest sister is adopted, but my parents were actually foster care parents for the time from the time I was one to 17. So oh, wow. they had about 50 different kids come in and out of the house from that time. So I kind of grew up as an every child, like yeah. a middle child, a youngest child, an oldest child. Um, it just changed all the time. And um yeah it was a great way to grow up you know at least for me because it gave me a lot of perspective and it also made me very um like i made me pay attention to the things that i have and the things that i don't and i shared everything yeah. i had and it was you know that was a great way to put me in my place as a, as a precocious kid you yeah know? i have a billion questions about that now um first what's the age difference between you and your brother so we're all seven years apart like my youngest sister's 14 okay. and my brother is 22 and I am 28. So okay. yeah, we're all kind of like six to seven years apart. Got it. Okay. Um, you said they fostered from one to 17. Well, when you, from when I just one to 17, yeah. uh, like when I was one yeah, 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 to yeah. 17 years old yeah. and then I'm using uh, that timeline too. <laughs> kind of slowed down. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what, I guess without asking you 40 questions about that, what, what did that look like? I guess what was the best part and then like the worst part of constantly having, I mean, these temporary relationships, right? Like that's got to be hard as a kid to build that up with this person you're living with and then that person leaves and then someone else comes and whatever that process looks like. And then uh, just, yeah, like having your attention taken away from you by your parents to put on other people as a kid. I, obviously, like growing up, you can look back and be like, oh, that was an amazing thing they did. But I imagine as a kid, you're looking at that and you're like, well, hold on a second. Well, actually, it's kind of on the contrary. My parents have always been um, just need meters like they they find out what people need and they fulfill it. And they're some of the most generous people I've ever met as a result. Sounds like um, <laughs> so like oftentimes, you know, we'd have anywhere from like one to four four kids come in at once they tried to keep siblings together which is also not the easiest thing in the world but they really it mattered a lot to them that family units stayed together as much as possible so yeah. i remember at one point my brother and i were in the house and then we had four uh siblings come and live so we had friends growing up that and siblings that we could like run around the woods and play together and that was a great way to grow up and i remember 
a lot of my time I was in like a bunk bed situation, you know, and yeah. um, it's cool to have like a constant, um, I guess, arrival of friends and friendships. And especially since I was a really introverted kid, I'm still introverted in a lot of ways, but like I was really socially distant and shy as a child and i didn't really have an opportunity to be that way when the house is always full of people <laughs> so yeah. um so it was a good way to grow up in those regards and i think um i you know uh, there was a point where it just kind of was hard to um establish maybe temporary relationships but with some of the people who came to live with us i still you know we still maintain relationships and um i just yeah it's just, that's it's a, a really yeah that's a beautiful sentiment and that's what a what a task i mean it, it's such a nice thing that your parents took on that i th i mean i can honestly say as much as it makes me feel like a bad person to say it, like i don't know if i could do that to that degree especially no um, that's a good um self-awareness to have because i think a lot of people think they could do it but it's really it's the most <laughs> selfless thing you can do it yeah. absolutely does not involve you at all it's not about you so yeah. it is something that we have to you know, people should be really careful before they think, oh, I'm just going to do this, you know, like, okay, but keep in mind, it's not rewarding. It's not self rewarding to you. And it's not about you. It's about being there for somebody else all the time, even if it's hard. Um, so yeah, just prep for that. If you think about yeah. it. <laughs> well, and I've interviewed a number of people that have been in that system as kids. And, you know, it can go in very different directions. And it sounds like your parents provided a really nice, safe space. I mean, you were in that same household. You seem to have turned out all right. So that's, well, that's cool. great. They supported, I mean, they supported everybody's hobbies. They would like run around uh, taking kids to soccer games or basketball tournaments or like music lessons and stuff. And yeah. it was, I was just as much a part of that as they were. So yeah, they're yeah. brilliant parents. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned introversion. And if anybody has ever seen you guys play uh, at, at any time, they you guys reference books that are far above my own head and i am wondering what role books played growing up and how that segued into songwriting for you uh yeah i've always been a voracious reader uh i joke that i'm the band librarian um just because <laughs> i always have at least six to eight books on me i'll usually start with two on the on tour and then i'll get through them within the first couple of days and then we have to go to a bookstore and get more for sav because she's bored <laughs> so then i end up with all these books and i feel like i have this uh skill set of being able to tell exactly the kind of books somebody might like so Ooh. um i like that role a lot um can i put you on yeah. the spot huh <laughs> can i put you on the spot as far as <laughs> Uh, what books I might like because I, I, I do navigate to a very specific genre of books but that's just... well I mean it helps to know what you've read and liked you know <laughs> or like um oftentimes it's with people I've traveled with in the van for like a, a minimum three to four days and yeah then once okay I'm that makes more stuff, sense like oh okay you might really like this you know yeah but I once I do know I feel like I nail it every time like I've passed out copies of books and then I never receive them back and that's yes. how you know like yeah. okay it's a good that compliment book with that person yeah <laughs> <laughs> what I what do you generally navigate to well I mean <laughs> it's really it changes all the time I have a lot of nature nonfiction right now uh, okay. but that's you know I'm in school so for biology so that's yeah. a given but I also really like horror recently just because okay. there are great writers such as Jordan Peele putting together anthologies and 
um you know any good story can be hiding under any genre really so i i just go looking for good stories i think that's what we do as songwriters too but uh, books certainly make that easier do you tend to stick to fiction I don't. I kind of wander all over the place. Okay. I've, um, I've found myself interested in topics ranging from like uh, Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, which is about like devastating nuclear accidents. And <laughs> like uh, Sam Keen does a lot of really cool books. He's got one called The Disappearing Spoon about the history of the periodic table. And, and then I also read Black Sun by Rebecca Rowanhorse, which is like a pre-Columbian like fantasy exploration, like a wholesome Game of Thrones. It's just it wanders <laughs> all the time. So a wholesome Game of Thrones is the best description. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. I, I think my D and D games are normally like a version of a wholesome Game of Thrones. Oh man, Unless, me too. I yeah. uh, I homebrewed a whole D and D game based off a book I read called Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. So nice. yeah, nice. big fan of good stories. Yeah, I forget that you. I think you've mentioned that actually that you got do you did the whole band play D D? I got them into D D. Nice. Good for you. <laughs> um but yeah, except Patty Prashela, um, she's a she's a hardcore D D player as well. But um I find that it's oftentimes something I do virtually and in the wintertime because all my musician friends are scattered across the United States yeah. and then we all stop touring. Sometimes we stop touring in the winter because it's hard to travel in the snowy conditions. So then that's the perfect time to play D and D. Yeah, that was a, that was an upside of COVID. As I got to play a couple of campaigns with people I would normally never play with because we were all on Zoom anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I got a I got a soft spot for D and D. Such is life. I, I'm curious what role growing up that music and and books played. Like what. What areas of your life were those fulfilling before you started to really like pursue it um, as, I don't know if I want to say career, because it sounds like you were writing songs earlier than you would maybe call it a career, but. No, yeah. I mean, I, when I was really little, I thought I was going to be a writer when I grew up. Um, I wrote a lot of little stories and poems and books and stuff. I wrote at least three ridiculous books uh, thinking, <laughs> oh, I'm totally going to go do this. And um it wasn't until I hit 12 that I started playing violin and it was kind of on a whim. Like I knew my parents were musicians. I thought that was super cool. And then my local public school, um, my elementary school, they had this really great program where they partnered up with the local music shop and the music shop would bring all these instruments for the public school students to try. And then they could pick something that they liked and then the school would follow up with the music class. So that is a, that is a complex, massively amazing program that doesn't yeah. exist everywhere, as I've come to find out. Um, but it worked for me, and I started playing violin, and my parents um, saw that I kind of had an interest in it, and they started this folk band for me to um, like improvise and learn how to play violin without looking at sheet music. So I did that when I was 12 to 16, just kind of as like a hobby, really. I mean, it was a lot of fun, and I didn't really um put that as like this is going to be my job um until i was 16. and that's when i met katie larson and our public high school orchestra program and we really hit it off we were still not quite um like we weren't close when we started the band we just had that in common of liking the same bands and um we met a lot by accident which is part of where the band name comes from but we kind of gave each other different freedoms. Like I started writing songs because of her and playing other instruments because of her. 
and she started playing out live, which I've been doing since I was younger with my family. So, uh, you know, that kind of took off and that felt promising. I think at 18, we made the real decision, the concrete decision to make it a career because we had to decide whether or not we were going to go to school for it at Berkeley or Beaumont, or if we were just going to hit the road and do a production deal and just make it happen. So we chose the production deal and it's just been a trajectory ever since. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I do credit that to like, how much that do you give to genetics? How much of that do you give to like hard work in the beginning? Cause it sounds like your parents laid out a pretty nice road for you with like, we're gonna start a band. So Sav can like learn the improv is a huge piece of this. Like what a, what a great thing to have. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to them being need meters where they <laughs> are really good at recognizing the things that people are capable of and setting up a path for them to, to do it. Uh, but they, again, they focus on what people are really interested in um, and don't try to like shoehorn anybody into something that they're not. So um, it's interesting that you bring up genetics because I'm actually taking a class in that right now. <laughs> and I do think like one of my big focuses is how music works in the brain and um, how it's tied to mimicry and how it's tied to memory. Like my grandfather had Alzheimer's and I'm really interested to find out, you know, why is it that when he lost all of his motor functions and couldn't pick up a fork, why is it that when you played a song back to him that he had written, he comes back into his himself and is singing along? Like what part of the brain is unaffected by this that's associated with music? And maybe there's a different part of music that keeps memory intact. So there is sort of a... I would say there's like some genetic implications, like there's a gene called FOXP2 that allows for songbirds to learn songs better and people to learn language better. And I think, you know, there's some stuff going on about how much FOXP2 is in the brain and how that contributes to memorization and music. But there's a long way yeah. to go in all of that. I have no idea what my genetics look like in that regard. I think that everybody is capable of creativity and imagination and music, but... I, it certainly helps to have support from a young age, not just from my parents, but from a community of music lovers, which yeah. I got to grow up in. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's, <laughs> I'm so curious about that gene now. And that's a beautiful <laughs> story about your grandpa. And I have to imagine that there was definitely a personal connection to you seeking some of that out and, and as far as school goes. Yeah, you know, um, I think that music is the study of life and then what I'm doing in biology is supplemental to it. You know, there's a biological reason why human beings still play music after thousands of years, you know, and why there's something about the pentatonic scale that calls to us and why we can distinguish between major and minor. And all of that is super fascinating to me. Um, I'm just so curious about it. So there's a lot to unfold there for sure. Um, Let's jump back to you guys, you and Katie meet, you start touring. Uh, what I mean, what does that look like at that age? Uh, obviously, you have the parking lot <laughs> um, narrative about not even being able to go into the venues you're playing at. And I imagine just as someone that has, has played and as a white male in this country, I'm sure you guys have dealt with a bunch of... Uh, bullshit for lack of a better term in that time period um as two young women like playing music across the country so can we dive into that time period and what that looked like for you yeah well i want to do a shout out to uh amber bice who actually when you talk about bullshit i think she put up with the most amount of it just because she was not just tour managing us and not just helping refine the sound but 
Uh, she was also buffering a lot of the bullshit that we got um, as 16-year-olds touring, um, especially, like you said, as two women. Um, yeah, I would say it got... It's never, it's never been more, it's been more ageist than anything else. Like okay. growing up, uh, we were kind of taught like, Hey, if you, if you're going to be in this industry, you need to know how to speak the language. You need to know what frequencies sound like at this point in this kind of room. And you need to know what your gear does and how to set it up on your own. And so Kate and I were lucky enough to kind of under, understand that and be taught how to navigate that industry with knowledge and that way um it would be easier to you know ascertain respect regardless of the fact that respect should just be freely given just because we're all people but it doesn't always work that way so um yeah just knowing how to speak the language walking in was um a massive curb to a lot of the behavior exhibited by some people when we first walk into a venue um and we kind of we've shaken hands with every person that we've ever met and we've tried to change the narrative one day at a time so I'm not going to focus necessarily on all the bullshit, um, more or less, how did we change that perception and how did we move forward earning respect um, in a world where, yes, it should be freely given, but isn't, you know, yeah. that's more the story I'm proud of. What are the more important lessons you guys learned other, other than that, obviously, massive lesson uh, that you just shared throughout that time, um, getting, getting into different places and, and playing. Were you guys venturing far out of Michigan at that point early on? Yeah, you know, we uh, we recorded, I think our real debut album we did in both Goshen, Indiana and Nashville, Tennessee while we were still um, in high school. So we were like skipping prom <laughs> to go <laughs> record in different areas. And then we would travel um, on our, you know, breaks, we would tour and we were just kind of getting our heads into the game a bit like a lot of it we started in michigan playing breweries and coffee shops like wow the brewery you brought up i think was probably workshop brewing company where we kind of had a residency (laughs) and this is before we could even drink so you know it was a huge (laughs) risk to take on a couple of teenagers to allow them not just to sit in a brewery for four hours but to behave respectfully and so um that's something that's really special about particularly the michigan music community is that so many venues were totally open to that and fine with it um i would say like uh um i'm sorry i lost my train of thought (laughs) that's all right i I think every question i've asked you is included five questions so yeah um so like yeah i think one lesson like i said is to know how to talk know how to speak the language of your industry and then the other is sort of it seems like it would be contrary to that but it's to ask for what you need uh, which was hard for me to do because I didn't want to come off like I wasn't knowledgeable about something because then people would condescend to you, at least yeah. was my worry. But actually, people are not, I, I've noticed that like, people are not that innately condescending. People are just excited to share information. Uh, so you have to kind of flip your thinking about it, especially if you've experienced, you know, annoying things in the industry, you, you will still come across people having that thing in common. So asking for what you need especially when you don't know and especially when you need help um that's been such a huge thing for us because the worst that can happen is that somebody can say no and then you find somebody else who can give you the information that you need to take the next step so uh that's a good lesson for us too yeah absolutely um when did you get michael involved in the band 
Yeah, so Michael joined the band probably around Bliss Fest of like 2014, question okay. marks. We, that's where we met, so. Gotcha. And then um, his first gig with us was on Mackinac Island, which uh, can't bring a drum set or anything, so he was just on this box like a cajon and uh, playing with sticks because he hadn't really played cajon before. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and he knew all the songs because he was a fan, so it, was, it worked out. Um, I'm wondering if we can fast forward. There's like a bunch of stuff I wanted to talk to you about that's happened, I guess, in the last like four years, right? Uh, and you you brought up at your show kind of COVID and how that you guys were touring like 200 some days a year and then everything kind of stopped. And I imagine that set in quite a bit of perspective. Um, and if nothing else, like might have jogged something loose that you guys have as a collective not really had to really think about because you've been go 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 yeah um you know a lot happened it was like first the trailer was stolen in january of 2019 then we got everything back and then in july of 2019 somebody crashed into our brand new trailer and our newly repaired van and its engine um and then totaled both of those things and we lost more gear and then six months later was the pandemic. So yeah, it was a lot of buildup to not just losing all of our touring income, but having to start over twice before that. And then yeah. the third time it was like, why are we, what is going on, you know? Yeah. Um, and we were able to kind of shift gears and record um, an album during quarantine in my attic. Uh, so that was hugely cathartic, but also when the way you've been living comes to a slamming halt, it's a massive transition for anybody. So I think all of us had kind of been working through different things. And um, you're right, like putting a pause on it uh, really makes you sit with it. And for me, I had just been running from any type of static anything. Like I don't want to stay still, um, attribute that to my ADD or to uh, whatever you want. But like really for me, I just liked traveling. And when it when I had to sit still anywhere, it was really hard for me to be alone with my own thoughts or be alone with myself. Um, so it was a good thing to every once in a while have everything fall through the cracks. I think there's a song I wrote called Crow's Feet. Uh, eight years before any of this would happen, <laughs> I wrote a line that sometimes like I will lose all I have song. just to see what remains. And yeah. uh, it was never more real to me than eight years later when I had lost, you know, all of the touring income. We'd lost the gear twice. Um, it was a great time to just kind of reevaluate and shift. Yeah. I, I love that song so much. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to nerd out yet. I'll wait till the end. Um, <laughs> but on, on the note of that, just I'm curious songwriting wise, I'm going to jump all over the place here. Cause I want to circle back to, to COVID and some of that stuff, but do you find, cause this has happened to me, this is projection. All my questions are projection. <laughs> do you find that, songs you've written end up having a more like meaningful meaning that's a sentence uh later on in life like you just mentioned crow's feet and later you're like oh shit this is like my own lyrics are kind of hitting me hard um more than they did when i wrote this song have you found that that's been any sort of pattern um that's the most like that's the one that immediately jumps to mind and i think like i write very I mean, the way I've written has changed a lot over even the past five years or so. Yeah. Um, but I write in this way where I collect a lot of information. <laughs> I do what's like called observation periods where I just 
and I'm not trying to write anything. I'm just paying attention to the messages that I see in movies or TV shows or um, something I read in a book or something that somebody says on the street and I try to weave together how they're all connected. And I think you can connect anything if you're um, trying hard enough. (laughs) So um, that's typically how I do a lot of my writing. And so as a result, you kind of get this writing that's both general in some ways, talking about broad truths and then uh, specific in others where sometimes it has a very special meaning to only you. And that meaning is going to change no matter how you try to control it, depending on who's listening and what context they bring to the table. So, um, yeah, of course, like I think um, going back and looking at old songs, um, you know, Lionel hit me a certain way. Like I did a co-write with Gary Burr and Georgia Middleman and Katie Larson called Leave It in the Dust. And there's a line in there that says, um, the burden gets so heavy with dreams that you can't trust. And I played that once and then out of nowhere, I started crying. And I have no idea why like that particular performance uh, hit the way that it did. But um, just depending on what you're going through, um, sometimes a line can hit you harder than others. And that's everybody. That's not just the writer. That's the way it's supposed to be for everybody. I uh, attribute this also to ADHD brain, but you know, if I get stuck on a song and listen to it over and over and over again, but this this week i only bring this up because because you just mentioned a song just making you cry it wasn't my own song but uh casey musgraves rainbow yeah (laughs) i've heard it a billion times and i woke up on monday with it in my head and i was like oh i gotta listen to that and before the end of the first verse i was just like sobbing and then i like leaned into it hard and listened to it like 500 more times this week and just was like (laughs) went to therapy i was like let's talk about this um but that that's the power I think that music has that you convey really well in your description there. And um, one of the reasons you guys draw the crowds that you do, I think it's specific um, people, which again, I'll get there eventually, but <laughs> jumping back to COVID I'll stay on some sort of timeline. Probably not. Okay. Uh, um, what, uh, what are some of the more specific things? Cause when I think about you guys, and, and I'm, I want to focus on you specifically. I'm just generalizing when I say, you know, the band. Um, but you form in high school, like you mentioned earlier, skip prom to do this. And uh, obviously your path from 16 on did not follow what might be like typical milestones of a uh, young adult, child, whatever you want to call yourself at whatever age. And I'm wondering if when you got that pause, there was any sort of, I don't want to use the word resentment because I don't think that's right. I mean, you tell me, but any sort of like, oh, I, I kind of feel like I missed out on this, this, and this, and I might reconsider A, B, and C. Yeah, this is a, this is not to make anybody feel bad about anything. I think <laughs> regret is a valid emotion. I just don't typically experience it. <laughs> Like when it comes to like, oh, if I could go back in time, like I don't really have that. I think I'm a little too rational when it comes to like, well, this is the circumstances that we're given and this is how we can adjust and move forward in a positive way. And so I don't really I wouldn't go back in time and change anything. And maybe that's just because I like where I am as a person and where I am in my career, too. But I even when the pandemic happened, um i was just kind of like well this is the circumstances that we're given how can we use this time to become better people and better musicians and you know more giving and more generous and so 
that's kind of like why I started to, um, why we started to record. And also I started, we were talking about it a little bit earlier, but I started working on a live streaming manual because I wanted there to be some way that we could still connect with people um, even while we were all in our own respective houses. And so this live streaming manual quickly became like a 40 page document that uh, would help musicians and venues and speakers alike um, connect. And so I put it out on my Facebook and uh, my friend Jay Gilbert uh, got it out to various publications like Hypebot. And pretty soon <laughs> there was like a ton of people tuning into it. And I started doing panels for the Recording Academy and the Grammys and Vocal Alliance and Patreon. And um, it was, I think, like when I look back in time, like all that point to say, like, I don't necessarily regret any pathway leading to a certain place. I just look forward and try to figure out how can we use this time um, to be more positive as a person and, you know, um, be more giving. Does that still allow you room to grieve things? Yeah, you know, I grieve things, but I don't, I don't live in it. I think grief is like, um, I was kind of writing this out in a Patreon blog the other day. Um, I treat grief as a room in a house that I can't live in. You know, I can go sit in that room for a time, just like I can sit in the rooms devoted to anger and denial and eventually acceptance. Um, maybe acceptance is the one that I live in. I don't know. Even that, you know, I think it's okay to go from room to room in the same house. Yeah. Um, but I can't live in a room necessarily. I just... It gets claustrophobic. I gotta, I gotta walk around the house. Fair enough. Um, what, what was the decision uh, for Mike to leave and then you guys to carry on? Uh, as far as the band goes, and I was cautious to how I brought that up because I didn't want to come off as like, so what's the tea? What happened with it? Like, I don't want to do that, and I don't. I imagine there's not a whole lot of that behind anything. Um, but I am curious, like what, what, what that looked like, how you guys as a band, just as a musician that's played with other musicians, like, and you have that connection, what is that like as one of those members, like losing that connection for the show and getting this new person and finding that new kind of mesh and that sort of thing? Sure. Well, I think, so I want to clarify too, that Kate and I, we were a band we've always thought of ourselves as like here's the core of the band especially yeah. because we do all the writing we do a, yeah. a lot of the you know pre-production work and um we were really grateful to have michael jump in and help provide a spinal cord so we could jump from instrument to instrument and start growing and changing and he was also crucial for arrangement you know it was really great to have his ideas for arrangement wise um, on the table but i think um you know after three big events that knocked us um, into a different kind of position regarding our own personal goals, um, we knew that like from the beginning, he wanted to eventually settle in somewhere in Michigan and have a studio and work with some of his favorite people like Seth Bernard and Dan Rickabus. And so he's got a studio in Grand Rapids. He's working at a band called Moss Manor with Seth Bernard and Dan Rickabus. I think like what conclusion we all kind of came to was that all of his goals were at this point where they were satisfied and the goals that weren't there anymore were to, to continue to tour full time and be on the opposite schedule everybody you love so it was kind of an easy decision and one that we all saw coming um okay that being said we're really excited to continue to have different people we've always been a band we're like 
before Michael was in the band, we had at least nine different drummers, uh, including Vince Russo and Jake Castillo and Will Parrish and like a ton of drummers um, play with the accidentals, just trying to feel out like who is going to, what's the dynamic. Yeah. Um, and I will say that the process of finding somebody else to fill that role was a heck of a lot easier than the first time we did it. We found Caitlin Coral within a couple of weeks and she's she wanted the tour full time. That was a goal she had. She's a multi-instrumentalist and a songwriter out of Rochester Hills, Michigan. And um, I hit her up with like two weeks notice to come play South by Southwest and she learned 25 songs in two days and sang all the harmonies. So we got really lucky yeah. to find somebody who was willing to fill that role and was excited to tour. Yeah, that's fantastic. That is what a workload learning 25 songs on an instrument and, and the harmonies. I mean, that's what she loves to do, you know, yeah, so it makes it easy. That's just, I got to imagine that's a funny phone call to get, Hey, South by Southwest, two weeks. Here's the roster. Learn it quick. Thanks. Bye. Like rehearsal days. Yeah. No, yeah. she, uh, she nailed it. It was, uh, that was like our first, we called it the panic shows because they're all like 45 minutes tops sets. Um, and we'd never played it as a three piece, let alone a four piece. We had Patty Prashela joining us as well. So the first time we ever got in a room together, all four of us was at South by Southwest, like maybe a couple hours before our first showcase um it was intense yeah, yeah. panic shows were intense that and that makes sense <laughs> yep. where in this same timeline is the where do you decide i want to go to school oh yeah so i started <laughs> <laughs> yeah add that um, in there so yeah that was in the midst of recording an album working on live streaming consulting like i was taking hundreds of live streaming calls um every month on how to do it from different venues and artists. But then I decided, well, I've always been interested in biology, like ever since I was a little kid. That's what I thought I was going to go do for a living was be a biologist. And then music kind of came out of nowhere. And I was like, this is cool. I'm a little go with the flow to a crazy point, you know, but yeah. um, but yeah, biology has always been calling my name. So I started taking I think I took like two online classes tops um, just every semester and just kind of was that was as much as I could handle at the time. And so I did that during the pandemic. And then Kate and I moved to Nashville uh, when we were done with our vessel tour. So like literally in, um, I want to say in September of 2021, we started touring with Sawyer Fredericks as like a dual headliner thing. And we toured all the way to Nashville and then we just stayed there. Uh, so I found a house, <laughs> built a studio before I even had a bed. Like I had like this little cot on the ground and then we started recording timeout uh, two, I think. Yeah. Timeout two. We started recording in the studio I'm sitting in now, which was fully built before I had like an actual bed. Um, so it was a crazy time. True uh, but artist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was around the time where I like submitted an application for MTSU to um, you know, just do a couple biology classes. I was planning on only doing like two because that's the workload I could handle at the time. Yeah. And then I received an invitation to take the honor scholarship, which would have basically given me a full ride, except I needed to be a full-time student and I needed to write an undergraduate thesis, which I, like an idiot, said, that should be fine. Yeah, no uh, So that's where I'm at now, <laughs> three semesters in. <laughs> fun, fun, uh, fun. Yeah handling it by the skin of my teeth, but it's, it's something that really informs my writing. So it's, I don't see it as a bad thing. It's really actually made me think a lot more deeply about everything. Yeah. And can we branch off on that fascination? Uh, Cause where, where do, where do birds come in? 
Where, what's what's the explain the birds to me? Sure. Um, so, you know, you've only got a couple of vocal learners on the planet, which is like basically you learn language from mom and dad. You've got like whales and dolphins. You've got us. And then you have a couple species of birds. And I just find that fascinating that, first of all, all three of those animals communicate via song. Um, or can communicate via song. So that's how it ties into the music aspect for me. But I think there's a running joke amongst the scientific community that you don't always choose necessarily what you fall into. All it takes is just you write one paper and boom, that's what your focus is. But, um, you know, for me, like I got really started in it um, by writing a paper on biological altruism, which in essence, there was this Stanford paper saying, oh, well, only people are capable of pure altruism, which is like an altruism where you do something at a, at a personal cost. And I took issue with that and wrote a big paper on how that was not necessarily true. And all, bio- all altruism is biological. We still get a reward every time we do it of like a nice little bolus of dopamine. <laughs> and then I found a bunch of examples of animals acting in ways we couldn't explain necessarily. And um, I, that just got me so interested in how animal cognition works, how complicated it is. Um, there's an empathetical side, I think, that needs more exploration. Um, so ever since then, I've been just kind of doing the work on how mimicry ties to empathy, ties to music, ties to memory. I think that they all have an interesting relationship and a lot of birds, especially in the family Corvidae, which is like crows, ravens, mocking, or sorry, crows, ravens, magpies, and jays. Um, they exhibit kind of an incredible trifecta of those qualities. So that's what's, that's how it all ties in. Okay. But I'm also working on an album called Mockingbird Sweet, and I have a mockingbird tattooed on my arm, yeah. and mockingbirds were originally how I associated with harmony and mimicry and uh, sort of the intimate act of mimicking somebody else's voice in a harmonic quality. So it all ties in. I love it. I love it. And, yeah, crows are fascinating. The stories of crow, like, just – the the gifting the gathering of i don't know yeah that's a whole other <laughs> topic it is do not let me talk about it for four hours because <laughs> i could yeah and i'm sure i i work i'm trying in the process of looking at publishing a paper i just wrote on a lot of that so nice. it's uh yeah <laughs> i could so, talk about it for- i'm curious because you mentioned add and uh i just went through the battery of tests at 40 because i was like i'm so i'm a backstory here um i'm in grad school to become a therapist so this time next year i'll have my license and um i was like oh if i'm gonna do this i should probably like get an actual like diagnosis and go through all the testing and everything um which i did and then found out like it explained so many things and when you talk about all of the different projects that you are consistently working on at the same time i'm like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh like i get do you attribute that to that to to that kind of that add or adhd brain yeah i think people are born with certain thresholds of what they're willing to do and i think maybe there's something in the way that our brains work that allows us to do certain things. Um, I have no idea really. I think (laughs) I definitely had some sort of diagnosis when I was younger um, of like, well, this is the way that she ticks. I know that my frontal lobe doesn't necessarily shut off uh, when I sleep. Uh, There's a sleep study I did when I was younger too. So like, I don't know, there's a various ways that I think the brain works, but I also try not to fully, 
let me phrase this right. I try personally not to let that make the whole of who I am. Just like I don't let my queerness be the whole of who I am. I don't let um, anything just be one thing. I think Mayor Early Wine said it best um, in her song, Never One Thing, where she just goes to like a whole list of like, I'm not just this, I'm not just this, and I'm not just this. These are things that are part of me, but they're not the whole of me. So that's the way I choose to look at um, any of the attributes that I carry around. Um, it's yeah. more or less just one more piece. I think the frustrating part of that, not frustrating, well, maybe. Um, sure. You can accept that about yourself, but then you have to also accept that you can't control those little buckets that people are going to put you into. <laughs> so yeah, you no, might not put yourself there, but you know, any number of people could be like, Oh, you're this. Well, and that's and, why I don't often share those things just because yeah. I don't want that to be the whole of who I, I have a hard time being put in one box or another. Oh, I just yeah. don't think that many things in life work like boxes. We just tend to do that because it's easier for us to swallow that pill or understand it better if we categorize things. And that's probably some sort of evolved defense mechanism that we as people have to do. But um, personally, I think everything is so much more spectrumized um, than we really give it credit for, especially after doing some biology courses, even Mm. just the barest minimum, the basic biology courses will tell you and chemistry for that matter, will tell you that nothing ever works in a binary or a box. Yeah, it's always breaking the rules. It feels limiting to identity as well. Because nobody is just x you know absolutely we are we all contain multitudes (laughs) so um, we're capable of whatever we you know want to be i I get that that's it's hard it's that's a very like generalized and kind of um hard thing to say is that like because not everybody is capable of everything that they want to do but i mean that's why one of my mottos is to ask her what you need ask for help um if you do want to be somewhere and you do want to um, get to this level, you're, you're capable. It's just like, we need help. We can't do everything alone either. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I wanted to ask, cause you mentioned this at your show and it, it stuck with me. And I think I messaged you about it too. This, the uh, described songwriting, uh, with other people as kind of like people coming together and just trauma dumping for <laughs> hours at a time. And I relate to that, but I'm curious if there's, if you're comfortable talking about it, if there's any specific traumatic moment that you think you've been able to transform into something beautiful like a song um i'm gonna choose not to necessarily do that not because i'm not comfortable discussing it but mainly because i want people to approach songs with their own things that they want to work through and not feel like it's tied to anything that came personally from me absolutely like my my thing about songwriting is that it's Yes, it's like trauma dumping, but it's also just like making soup. I've made jokes about this too, where it's like you, everybody shows up with different ingredients and we all work together on it. And then the soup is served to everybody to eat. And then all of us are going to have a different perspective of what that soup tastes like. But everybody is walking away feeling some sort of full. So that's my mission. It has less, it has almost nothing to do with me. Um, And I I kind of want to keep it that way just (laughs) For for the sake of other people being able to eat the soup too. Well, I, yeah, I, respect that i appreciate that answer um so mockingbird suites this solo tour where where did it come from what uh what was the desire to do it and and what can we expect from it 
Yeah, you know, I was joking at the show that I did recently that rock and roll tends to eat song lyrics for breakfast. And, you know, there's a space in my heart that is absolutely, I love playing shows. Uh, I love playing multiple instruments. I love playing rock and roll. And that space is going to continue to thrive. Like, just because I'm working on solo stuff does not mean that the externals are over. We're still touring very heavily, especially in the summertime. And I'd be itching for it if it wasn't there, you know. But for the songwriting, it does allow for the lyrics to have a space to exist and to be heard. Um, and I kind of want that to be a space that's separate um, and it has room to breathe and grow a little bit. And so uh, Mockingbird Suite is like a collection of songs that are... Um, that just range in very weird topics. Like they're heart songs for me, but they're also just strange. And I think that's the other reason why they belong in a separate space. Uh, there's like a song about a two-headed cow. There's songs about Oliver Sacks books and songs about people I've lost along the way. Um, and yeah, I think that is gonna sit in a space um, that is under the title Mockingbird Suite, um, where, you know, the mockingbird it can mimic all these voices and be all these different things. And sometimes as a result, you tend not to know what the original voice might be, but there's a space for it to exist if you give it. And so that's what my role is. That's my, that's what I'm hoping to do. I think, I mean, I think you accomplished that <laughs> as, as someone that attended uh, one of your shows, I, I think that you're definitely accomplishing that. So what, when will the album be out? So we're looking at spring of 2025. I'm going to be putting out some stuff before that. And I also have a Patreon now, which is where um, I'm hoping to just kind of refine and develop and um, fix a lot of that along the way. So I'm putting the demos out there. I'm doing a lot of like intimate behind the scenes stuff. I'm writing, I'm hosting like a songwriter workshop there and I'm going to be doing monthly live streams. So people will hear all the newest material um, if they want and have conversations about it. And um. I'm also hoping to like have people feel like they can write songs too. So I'm doing prompts on postcards where I literally write a songwriting prompt on a postcard from wherever I am in the world and sending it straight to uh, people. And also just putting thoughts about songwriting and demos and the songwriting workshop's gonna be cool too. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff I'm doing over there that has to do with the album and is in support of the album. That's where all the money going in there is gonna go towards creating that album, so. Okay, so that's, I mean, that's a year and a half away. It is. You're just going to be just doing like, a lot of writing and recording in that meantime. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's the thing is that the ex part of the reason that the date is so far out is because the accidentals have a lot of projects we're working on too. Yeah. Like we just got timeout three mixes back from Mary Bragg who produced the record. And we've got co-writes on there with Grace Pettis and Robbie Hecht, Kishana Armstrong, Mary Bragg herself, Gary Bird, Georgia Middleman, uh, so many others that we're really, really excited about. So we're going to do timeout three, then we have a covers record and we have a children's record with Tom Paxton that we're excited to put out into the world. It's so goofy and ridiculous. So and I love it so much. So once all those projects are out there, that's when I'm going to start really, but I'm not going to start pivoting. I'm already just kind of working on that in the background, especially with the Patreon, but um, I'm giving it time to grow as well for sure. Cause these are songs that are, I think, um, have time and space to refine them and that's that's brand new for me so yeah. let, let me ask with especially after that laundry list of things you have coming up <laughs> what do you do if anything uh, i'm calling you out what do you for self-care and like 
taking taking a break for a second and just uh, yeah. for yourself. Um, no, I I feel that. I I joke I have like one 13-hour sleep day a month. And I carve that out for myself. <laughs> um, but also I do things I love all the time. Like I'm I'm wearing a hat that says soup mode right now and yeah. that's because I'm about to make a really good soup. Um, I also do like I've started weightlifting, uh, which I've really enjoyed. It's been helpful to me to like get a little bit of exercise in, but also to feel like I'm pushing through something in a totally different way and using muscles I've never used before. And I think there's a metaphor in that buried somewhere that'll probably end up in another song. But um, and then reading, you know, reading has always been sort of my backbones where I go to when I'm, you know, feeling like I don't want to do anything. I feel like I'm hardly working when I'm reading a book. So uh, yeah, all those things. I still have time for self care. I don't know how I think um, <laughs> I live out of like nine different Google spreadsheets. And one of them just says, here are the three things you have to do today. And then once I'm done doing them, then I go do the self care stuff. So <laughs> I think day by day is a great lesson that I it took me years to learn. But um, we're there. So better to get there now than than never. A lot of people, a lot of people struggle in that category, especially with the amount of stuff that ha uh, going on that you have going on. So that that is awesome. I'm looking forward to everything you named. Um, so it's it's been really cool. And I really appreciate the time you've taken today. And uh, yeah, keep making music because it's it's fantastic. And helpful. Thanks so much for putting a spotlight on it. <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. And it's um, not something that I think it's something that we kind of take for granted is the accessibility um, sort of of understanding where musicians and people are coming from. So thanks for making an avenue for that. Thank you. Well, I will I will release you. I appreciate it. And uh, go enjoy your 40 projects. I look forward to them coming out. You're just, when is Time Out 3? Because that's getting mastered now. You got the mixes back, you said? Just got the mixes, so we're in mix editing mode, and okay. then uh, we'll move into mastering, and we're hoping to have everything done by December, and then we can do a tour in the spring for it. So hopefully cool. putting it out by spring. All right. Well, see you soon, hopefully, and I'll talk to you later. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> you and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? All right, you just listened to my interview with Sav Beist. I went back and forth so many times on how to say her last name, and then someone said it. I don't even remember where now. I know I heard it said at the venue, and I was like, okay. I kept saying Buist. You know, like, when do you actually say your last name? Um, especially if you're in a band. You know, you're not like, hey, we're the Accidentals. My name is Sav Beist. No, it's just, I'm Sav, this is Katie, blah, blah, you know? Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. If you got through this episode and you're like, oh, maybe I'll check them out, and you haven't yet, oh my God, go listen to The Accidentals. I fucking love The Accidentals, and I tried to articulate how much that band means to me to Sav at the end, and it just fell apart. <laughs> uh, and it's always uh, slightly embarrassing thing to do regardless but just really really love what they're doing and they're just I think some of the most talented people out there give them an instrument give them a they'll just blow your fucking mind man I, I love the accidental Sav I am so thankful that you did this and sat down with me 
Um, it's always nice to interview somebody that I don't know, but I'm a big fan of. Um, it actually kind of goes against how I do the podcast, but when the opportunity arises, I, I try to take advantage of that. So I appreciate you and, and you guys, Sav has a Patreon where uh, you can get all sorts of stuff, whether that be postcards with songwriting prompts or special live shows or even like one-on-one songwriting workshops, depending on your investment level. Um, on that same note, if you have an extra dollar to spare, I've got a Patreon for friend requests, so head over and do that too. Uh, I think I'm breaking even currently. Man, I'm, I'm probably still paying for this podcast, let's be honest. And yeah, just good stuff. Um, I was going to say something else. I don't remember what. It has been such a busy, 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 busy end of summer, beginning of fall. Um, I am finally in the home stretch of all the crap that I'm working on, and I'm so excited. I'm going to be done before Thanksgiving, and then I'm going to try to chill the fuck out for the rest of the year. So fingers crossed that that pans out, but we will see. Even today, I was going to edit next week's episode today, and, uh, you know, some other stuff is more pressing. And the weather's really nice, and I'm trying to be like, Justin, go kayaking. Oh, but I have other stuff I got to do. I can be outside if I want to be outside. I got some fucking leaves and lawn shit to do, but just frustrating. Um, I will say I signed up for Sav's Patreon and I got her first writing prompt postcard from the Dripping Springs Songwriters Fest in Texas, I believe. And I pulled this book out and I started skimming through and I found something and I ended up writing a song. So that was fun. Uh, if you are a songwriter, it's, it's such a fun little bonus. It's always, it's always nice to be challenged. I don't know. People feel differently about this and there's a lot of different therapists specifically that feel differently about it, but I'm a big fan of homework. Like give me a task, give me something to do and a deadline to do it by. I like doing that. And it feels like a little bit of a challenge, um, creatively when it's a songwriting thing. So I like, I like exploring that a little bit, but that's about it. I'm going to let you guys go. I think you're all beautiful. I was so fucking happy to have Sav on here. Uh, Katie, if you're listening to this, reach out, girl. I would love to talk to you. I think I've talked more to you via messaging and email than, than Sav. Um, and I will try to articulate my love for the band a little more. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, guys. I love you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay.